Starting in the early 1990s, the world experienced a globalization boom that lasted two decades. Countries became more connected in all kinds of ways. People and businesses traded more goods and services across national borders. They invested more money in each other. And the rise of the Internet made it easier for them to share information with each other with just a keystroke. And the promise of globalization was that it would make the global economy more efficient, more prosperous, because it would allow the people and businesses inside of countries to specialize in doing the things they do best and then to trade for the things that other countries do best. But globalization was not just supposed to be about economics. Fans of globalization also hoped that it would make the world more peaceful. Because, you know, if countries depend on each other for their economic prosperity, they're not going to want to jeopardize that prosperity with political disputes or, you know, at the extreme level fighting each other in a war. But as the U.S. trade war with China and a bunch of other recent diplomatic disputes have shown, that assumption about globalization is looking increasingly shaky. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith. And I'm Cardiff Garcia. Today on The Indicator from Planet Money, we discuss a new framework for understanding globalization, a framework that says it is globalization itself that has provided the diplomatic weapons being used in these disputes. Support for NPR and the following message come from Holt, publisher of Michael Punk's Ridgeline. The highly anticipated return of the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Revenant, which became the Academy Award-winning movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Ridgeline is a sweeping epic of the American West set in 1866. Ridgeline by Michael Punk is available now wherever books are sold. Henry Farrell is a professor of political science and international affairs at the George Washington University. He says some of the assumptions that people once made about globalization are now being undermined. So I see the basic assumptions of globalization as being that when you start to put work out to the world, that is, when you start to engage in all of these complex relations of international trade, producing things in ways that go across national boundaries, that you would be able to do so with a minimum of politics. And what I think we're seeing now is that politics are getting more and more complicated. Political disputes between countries, Henry says, are increasingly interfering with the close economic relationships that those countries have enjoyed. This wasn't really supposed to happen. A premise of globalization was that the way that countries and companies and other actors trade with each other and invest money with each other would be mostly based on rules that those countries had already agreed to, and that political arguments between the governments of those same countries would not much get in the way. But now? And in particular, national security concerns are beginning to overshadow some of the ways in which actors were trying to create more efficient ways of building things, of engaging in trade, and are really potentially threatening to undermine those kinds of relationships that really help us to build the kinds of things, the kinds of products that we have come to rely upon. Right now, the obvious example of how the politics of national security is interfering with the trading relationship is the trade war between the U.S. and China. Yeah, see, the trade war started the way you would expect a trade war to start, with tariffs. These are taxes on goods that are sold from a business in one country to people and businesses in another country. The U.S. and China have now raised tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars of each other's goods. For a while, these tariffs were part of a negotiation that was mostly about economics. The U.S. wanted to sell more American goods inside of China, and China wanted the same from the U.S. Plus, the U.S. wanted China to protect the technology and intellectual property of American companies that do business in China. But the U.S. and China could not reach a deal. 
And now the U.S. and Chinese governments are targeting each other's economic weaknesses as part of this larger diplomatic standoff, which is largely about national security. And these are economic weaknesses that exist precisely because the two countries have become such close trading partners in the last few decades as part of globalization. It's kind of like how spouses know each other's weaknesses so well precisely because they've become so intimate. <laughs> that make, and that can make the fights even more brutal. Yes. Right? What we're beginning to realize, I think, is that when you start to really get deep, deep, deep into globalization so that, for example, you begin to rely upon a particular product that is made in another country, you then expose yourself to possible pressure by that other country, which then can use the uh, fact that you are dependent upon this product to uh, try to extract concessions from you, to act against you in ways that you might not like. When countries do this, when they exploit each other's dependence on their trading partners and on the global trading system, Henry refers to it as weaponized interdependence. It's a concept he's been working on with his collaborator, Abraham Newman, in a new study. And maybe we should start using this term for relationships, too. Oh, God. (laughs) Weaponized interdependence. Uh, Anyway, weaponized interdependence helps explain what the U.S. has done to Huawei, a huge Chinese telecommunications company. So Huawei has 188,000 employees, and it operates in more than 170 countries. It sells smartphones all around the world, pretty much everywhere except in the U.S. And it also sells the equipment that countries can use to build their own wireless networks. Huawei has a dodgy past. It's been accused of stealing the technology of American companies like Cisco, T-Mobile, and Motorola. Plus, the U.S. government believes that Huawei has a close relationship with the Chinese government and that Huawei might help the Chinese government spy on people in other countries using the telecommunications equipment that it sells to those countries, which is one reason the U.S. has long believed that Huawei is a national security threat. So the U.S. government has taken steps to prevent Huawei from buying or licensing the American technology that it needs to make its products. Like the glass for its smartphones, Huawei buys it from Corning, the U.S. company, or the microchips that Huawei buys from Qualcomm, or the Android operating system that Huawei gets from Google. Plus, the U.S. is pressuring other countries not to buy Huawei smartphones and equipment. So consider what's happening here. The U.S. government is cutting off trade with Huawei, not just because of what it considers to be unfair trading practices, but explicitly for national security reasons to prevent Chinese spying and surveillance. And to do this, the U.S. is even willing to hurt its own companies, which can no longer sell technology to Huawei, and to get in the way of other countries altogether buying equipment from Huawei as well. The U.S. is using Huawei's very dependence on its trade with the U.S. and with other countries against it. And, of course, this goes both ways. The Chinese government has been threatening to retaliate in a bunch of different ways, including threatening to cut off its exports to the U.S. of rare earth elements. So rare earths are necessary to make all kinds of electronics and cars and other advanced technologies, including military equipment. And of all the rare earths that the U.S. imports from the rest of the world, 80 percent come from China. So again... That is an example of how the interdependence between American and Chinese businesses is being weaponized, this time by the Chinese government. Henry Farrell says he's not surprised by this. In fact, he suspects that the world is evolving increasingly in this direction. 
And I think that to some extent, uh, this is also a kind of a world in which you can see these kinds of things beginning to escalate pretty quickly, because it could be that when one country begins to do this, another country which might before that have been attached to a more uh, optimistic account of how globalization works will begin to retaliate, and you can get these spirals beginning to develop very, very quickly. And I think plausibly that is what we're beginning to see now between the United States and China. A world in which countries are becoming more comfortable exploiting the economic dependence of other countries to get what they want politically. And also a world in which countries therefore try to reduce their own economic dependence so that they can't be exploited. And the way countries become less economically dependent on each other is to do less business with each other in the first place, to trade less with each other, to share less information, and to invest less money in each other. Globalization in reverse, basically a less connected world. And in the case of the U.S. and China, the two biggest economies in the world and which are deeply connected economically, there is no real precedent for what happens if those two economies start to separate. What happens when these economies begin to become more suspicious and fearful of each other? That's a huge, huge open question and something which uh, we really need to start figuring out pretty quickly because the long-term consequences of making mistakes could be very serious indeed. We just scratched the surface on weaponized interdependence in this episode. So if you want to know more about it, we'll link to Henry Farrell's paper with Abraham Newman over at npr.org slash money. This podcast was produced by Constanza Gallardo and fact-checked by Emily Lang. The Indicator is a production of NPR. After more than 50 years of lies and silence, a witness to the attack on Jim Reeb finally tells the truth about what she saw. I didn't know whether they'd going to get off or not. But I was glad when they did, even though they were guilty and I knew they were guilty and they knew they were guilty. It's White Lies from NPR. Listen and subscribe now.